Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, wonderful frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris, and welcome to this bonus episode of Enemies of the People. As you know, Enemies of the People is now on a break until season two of the podcast begins in January 2022. But this is the first of two bonus episodes that will come out in December as I'm busy getting season two of the podcast produced. It's so good to be back. If you don't know, my laptop died a horrible death last week and I was very stressed and I was very upset to say the least. But it's all finally sorted now. Thank you so much for your support, your kind words, your messages, and all of you who bought me extra coffees and support. You are all amazing. Thank you. So on this episode, I will be sharing with you the edited recording of our last Frenemies book club meeting, the October one, where we discussed how fascism works by Jason Stanley. Before we begin with the book club, I wanted to have a quick word. So much has happened in the last few weeks that so clearly indicate how fascist politics are at work in the United Kingdom. In his book, How Fascism Works, Jason Stanley identifies fascist rhetoric as one of the dehumanization and division, a rhetoric which encourages fear and anger as a means to foment division between people, especially between ethnic, racial and nationality lines. Nowhere is this clearer than in the systemic dehumanization of migrants as a result of the British immigration system. In the last few weeks, we've had the tragic news of the 31 migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, the 31 human beings who drowned trying to reach England. Priti Patel, our Home Secretary, expressed sadness at their deaths, calling it a tragedy. But this was a direct result of her immigration policies. Their, their deaths were avoidable. This is the same Priti Patel who has proposed changes in immigration law to allow for boats to push back migrants in open waters back to France and away from safety. This is not to mention the news that has just come out about the Foreign Office whistleblower that is arguing that the UK government abandoned Afghans as the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan and prioritized the rescue of animals over human beings. I direct you to our episodes with Zoe Gardner and Maya Goodfellow, which went live before all of this, and they are so prescient in condemning and really distilling the hostile environment and UK immigration policy as brutal, cruel, and deadly all of which are characteristics of fascist politics. So without further ado, here is our recording of October's Frenemies Book Club, discussing how fascism works by Jason Stanley. I was joined by Davey, John and Kelly, and I had a wonderful time, and I hope you will enjoy listening to our conversation as well. your first impressions of how fascism works? I think it's so easy, isn't it, to think fascists only are those people who, you know, goose step around and they wear particular uniforms. And if you sort of go a bit later to the 70s, it was seeing heads and beating people up. But I think it's the way that insidious language has been normalised and how it's been kind of forming part of the mainstream and how language has changed. So because overt racism isn't really tolerated so much anymore, the way that language has changed. So coded language is used and how rather than words like race it's more like culture but you know that that's just a way of othering people who are not like 
the majority. And I, I just think it's a very useful exercise to ask ourselves, are we really exaggerating the, the position or is fascism really present and a big danger? And I, you know, I happen to think it is. Trump is no longer with us, fortunately, but, you know, he's there in the background and an awful lot of people voted for him. And I think However you look at it, people like like Trump, they, they were they were fascists, they were able to normalize fascist language. And I just think it, it's important that, that people realize that however the language is is adapted for our society, but still the, the underlying otherness, the underlying extreme positions. One of the things I like the most about the book is how he with every of his points that he makes about how the mechanism of fascism works, he links it to a historical occurrence, a historical example, and a modern day example, really making clear this link yeah. that it's not a historical event, but a type of politics that has been used throughout history. And the one chapter in particular that I enjoyed the most when it comes to this um, angle was the chapter on unreality. And because we tend to think of fake news and the dismissing of experts as like a modern phenomenon happening since Trump and Brexit. But he makes a very convincing point that this is just a type of fascism, a type of, of a fascist rhetoric, expression of fascist politics that has been in place since the 30s. It's not so much a modern phenomenon as it, the modern expression of a type of politics. And I really enjoy that because that's not something I had thought of before, looking at fake news and reality and this dismissal of experts as an expression of fascist politics that has been going on through history rather than just being a modern phenomenon. Something that I find like possibly just a non-point something that's preyed on my mind for a long time as we've seen more fascistic things coming back into the fray is that it seems to me like a lot of people that subscribe to, I always call it like the Trumpian politics, is that they will go with anything if they think that it bothers people that don't agree with them and I think there's a lot of people out there that I don't think that, that, that they necessarily even believe what they're saying as much as they just want to rile people up and they'll say it and stand behind it for as long as they think that it annoys people. It's ironic that it's the more fascistic in society that call people reactionary because they seem to be the ones who instantly leap to being offended, annoyed, you know, by more inclusive language or anything to do with making people more equal, not more equal, because I hate that phrase, but equal. I find it fascinating because it's almost like there's this, there's this deep intent to offend people at any cost, including selling your morals down the river. And it's funny, David, because you mentioned, you know, this kind of idea of victimhood, how the oppressors have this feeling of victimhood and they're always jumping to 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 say that they're being attacked. And that is actual something that Jason Stanley in the book identifies as a tactic of fascism is this idea of permanent victimhood. And this quote here where he says, promulgating a mythical hierarchical past works to create unreasonable expectations. When these expectations are not met, it feels like victimhood. And there is a sense of aggrieved victimization amongst the majority population. So it's really this idea that we've talked many times before that, you know, equality feels like oppression if you're in a position of privilege. And because the, the fascist politics is a politics of hierarchy and how those on the top of the hierarchy have the best social position, when that is not translated into reality, it breeds the sense of victimhood. So it's very much not an accident, it's a tactic of fascism to breed the sense of victimhood into society. And it, I find it very, very shocking, but also not surprising how much we hear this language of victimhood. We always talk about people being cancelled. You know, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day and we're saying, well, we all wished we were cancelled, like certain academics have been cancelled because they have been promoted. They've been made professors. They have 
book mm-hmm. deals. You know, Dave Chappelle has been complaining that he's been canceled because of his transphobic comedy, but he has made a million dollar deal with mm-hmm. um, Netflix to do another one. So we mm-hmm. all wish we were canceled to that extent. Well, I think um, Nigel Farage, uh, he seemed to be on question time more than anybody else and his you know his actual popularity in terms of votes was was pretty much non-existent i think he tr- attempted um to stand for parliament seven times and he was always complaining about being cancelled but you couldn't see him you, you know you couldn't move for having seen him on the airwaves so much it's quite, really quite astonishing wasn't it the thing about Nigel Farage that drives me up the wall is because a lot of very well established people on the media and in academia dismissed how powerful he was because he was never elected. So they always framed him as this failed politician. But his point, I never felt that his point was to ever get elected into the British Parliament. His point was to disrupt British politics and change the Overton window towards more right-wing ideology. Yeah, yeah. And he has been so successful. I was speaking, I think I asked Peter Jukes in in the most recent episode, like if if Caroline Lucas had been given the same amount of airtime as yeah. as Nigel Farage, or you know, instead of Nigel Farage, would Brexit have ever happened? What kind of a politics would we have in this country if people like mm-hmm. Farage or Farage himself was not given the airtime that he was? Yeah, the thing is, it, it fits exactly what we've just been saying anyway. Like Farage, if Farage had been made into a proper politician, I mean air quotes there, if he had been made into it, then he never would have been as successful as he was. The fact that he was the angry underdog who had a lot to say and nothing to lose fits yeah. this persona that he puts out there. You know, I'm the angry everyman who wants to take back our yeah. aggrieved politics from the nasty EU. And it's like, yeah. your wife is from Germany. Your children have German passports. You're yeah. more wealthy than I will ever, ever be. You're not like me. You don't stand for me. You don't know who I am, who my dad is, who my sisters are. But people buy it. Because he says the stuff you shouldn't say. It's funny, isn't it? You know, claiming to be anti-establishment. And, you know, he used to work in the city. And (laughs) it's astonishing, you know, again, this lying and this creating this false um, identity, you know, claiming that you're standing up for the common person, you're a maverick. And, you know, he's nothing of the sort. But he's he's of a type, isn't he? Trump was so anti-establishment you know he was going to drain the swamp but there's a billionaire talking you know it's astonishing how they're able to create these you know false narratives for themselves and have it believed i just i always call johnson t-back trump because <laughs> that's what he is you know like i every time anybody's like oh he's, he's like a man of the people i just feel like referring them to that interview where the person says to him you get you complained about your 250 grand per article salary and he yeah, laughs yeah. and says chicken feed and i'm like yeah. that's yeah. more than i've earned since i started working <laughs> even yeah. stepping down from things as extreme arguably as fascism looking at the brand of politics that we've had for a long time in england is is a bone of contention for me because we have people making decisions about health that have never been a doctor or a nurse or worked in a hospital we have politicians that make huge decisions about our education system who've never taught you know it 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 seems strange and i know people from other countries who were like your politics are mad like if if our education secretary hadn't worked in her school they wouldn't be the education secretary Mm. but that's what we allow and it's only that's only been what i think is the framework for what's led to such a 
extremist government. I think as well, one of the key points about Britain in particular, the kind of fascist politics that we have in Britain, is hierarchy. And where is the quote from Jason Stanley? Oh, yes. So he's on his chapter on hierarchy. He says that a hierarchy is a kind of mass delusion, one readily exploited by fascist politics. And the British state... The British society is constructed around hierarchies. It always has been. I have found quite, well, fascist politics in the US, of course, there is a level of hierarchy to that as well. The class system in the UK, this idea that we have of, you know, the aristocracy is is bound to be exploited by this kind of politics. And I think that one of the reasons why Johnson gets away with it so much is because he's very much part of the elite and he has never presented himself as a man of the people. And to a large extent, British society has accepted it because I wanted to a large extent, British society are used to being ruled by elites because that's mm. how the way the, or, the society has been organized for so long. Mm. So I wonder how much of it we're, we're doomed <laughs> because of the way we organize our society and the way we have organized our society for so long, because to disrupt this, to disrupt the, the class system in the UK, I personally can ima- cannot imagine what would it take i mean can, there are lots of discussion nowadays about how sick the queen is and how very probably she's going to die soon and we're going to have charles be the king what will it take for the, the monarchy to end and does the monarchy need to end for britain to move past this kind of system i don't have the answer to that i don't know what do we think I, I think the um, monarchy is, or the royal family, are as pretty much as entrenched as they ever have have been, because they they're very clever at moving with the times and adapting and seeming to change, but never really actually giving too much away. And I think they were probably most vulnerable back in um, ninety seven when Princess Diana died, and there was seem seemingly quite a strong republican force in in the sense that you know a lot of people are unhappy with the queen not flying the flag at half mast etc etc and i think there was a sudden realization that we need to show a bit more empathy we we seem to you know we have to come out of our shells a little bit more and you know to be seen to show a bit of remorse etc and i think they since then they have um, really strengthened their position but i also think against that you have the argument, well, if it wasn't the royal family, who else would it be? You know, because you look at the elected politicians and you have things like the expenses scandal and you just have this low-level feeling of corruption and jobs for the boys and revolving doors and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, a lot of people think, well, if it were, if it wasn't the royal family, they're probably about the best you can you can hope for. So, I th- you know, like I said, I just think they're very adept at changing and, you know, not 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 giving up any any power. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what other people think about that. I'm not sure. I don't really like the idea of the monarchy, but there's been a few times where there was a case recently with in, in the United States who, of course, the president is the is like the they would fulfill that state role. And there was a case where grieving parents were receiving the bodies of um, service people who'd been, uh, soldiers who'd been killed abroad. And politics came into it. Now, if that had been the queen just representing the country and not the one making the decisions, think that, that, and I just thought, oh yeah, that's what the queen's for. Mm. 
she yeah. um she represented the country but she was kind of above political criticism and I mean clearly she's not she's there's plenty to criticize her for but she would fulfill that role but I'm uncomfortable with the idea of the monarchy because it's well it's the ultimate elitism and and like you say it affects our politics not just as a figurehead but as a structure of society so I'm kind of against it but I can see where it might sometimes be useful. I think there are two issues there. One is that Diana, as you said, John, I think Diana was a great disruptor of of the monarchy. But the thing that's fascinating is that she was also an aristocrat. She was not one of the people, but she did her best for various reasons. And she was very successful at breaking those barriers and not portraying herself as being above the people. And so in that way, she managed to disrupt the view of the royal family and also to paint them in quite a negative light without having to do much. I don't, and I think we, uh, I say that as, as, you know, as a Republican, as somebody who doesn't want the monarchy to exist, that that was a moment there that didn't translate into a more Republican, you know, movement that somehow the royal family managed to hold on to that power. And like you said, John, they're very good at transforming themselves and molding themselves to fit certain times. But I wonder to what extent that is a particular success of the queen that's not going to come if Prince Charles becomes king. I Mm. think the smartest thing the royal family could do is for Charles to abdicate and give it to William because William and Kate are actually popular. He isn't. But I, I don't know if they would do that. I don't think Charles, who has been groomed his whole life and who has gone through a lot to be king and who clearly believes that it's his divine right to be king and he's waited for so long because his mom's hung on to it for so long I don't think he would ever step aside so maybe we might see another window of opportunity for some disruption Mm. coming soon I think one of the main things that they could really do that would really frustrate people is demonstrate the power that they actually still have over politics because one of the main arguments I always have with people that are more pro-monarchy is oh, well, they're just figureheads now. They have no active involvement in British politics. And I have so many examples that I just casually whip out about, you know, the Queen lobbying for exemptions about green stuff or Mm -hmm. just the fact, like, the fact that she actually holds the power to fire the Prime Minister. Why? Like, she she shouldn't, if if she's just a figurehead, she should not have that power. Whether Whether she enacts it or not is irrelevant. She has that power. I don't, you don't, nobody else on this call does, it's it's clear that she is involved in politics just by existence. So to say that she's not is a lie. I think people people ignore the fact that symbolic power is still power. You know, the idea that she can fire the prime minister, but they say, oh, she would never do that. It's just symbolic, but it's still power. And it's power that nobody else has. It's power that parliament doesn't have to recall a prime minister. For parliament to be able to recall a prime minister is a very difficult process. And those are our elected officials, right? So it's they're supposedly representatives, even in the very bad democracy that we have here, very unrepresentative democracy that we have here. They're the, the closest that we have to representative democracy in this country, and they don't have the power to get rid of the prime minister as easily as the queen has. So that is a problem. And I think people tend to dismiss symbolic power as, you know, it's just a symbol without seeing that it's symbols are what matters. I think I wonder if, David, you and I see this from the same perspective, because we both have degrees in media studies and that we have studied for a long time 
the power of symbols and the power of images and that it is not nothing. Well, you can, you can look at fascistic symbols for power. People like, you know, the, the mere idea of seeing a fascist symbol freaks people out. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, the idea of seeing the swastika on someone's front door is terrifying. And that is, that shows you a literal symbol that holds a freakish amount of power. But when people dismiss symbolism, symbols as, as not real, as, you know, not, not a real thing, you underestimate things because you're clearly not thinking, looking at, a, you know, what, what could ostensibly be called a positive example. Crucifixes, you know, they represent, you know, you see a crucifix, you think of God and Jesus and, you know, religion and, you know, like you think of big archaic buildings or whatever, you know, churches, safety, all of those things that are drilled into you from a young age. Like, how can people write off so easily symbolic power when that kind of thing is so ingrained in our head Mm. from every aspect? That reminds me of once when I saw a swastika graffitied on a school next to where I used to live in London and I called the police to report it and the police came to my house to take a statement and they asked me you know are you personally offended by this like yes it's a swastika Mm -hmm. of course I'm personally (laughs) offended by it are you Jewish no but that doesn't matter (laughs) it is still personally offensive it always made me feel extremely scared whenever I saw it Mm -hmm. because it symbolizes something and I am not I am I'm British, but I'm also an immigrant and I'm I'm a person of color. And clearly those people are against someone like me existing the way that I do in this country. So I always found that really, really quite scary. I also wonder how much of far-right symbolism flies over the, the heads of people that are not aware of it. Boris Johnson in Parliament a few weeks ago, I think it was a couple of months ago now, he was talking about how England, Wales, and Scotland are united in a history of blood and geography and tradition. And that made me jump because that's blood and soil, which is a Mm. far-right theme, you know, a far-right slogan. And he was saying it in Parliament. And how many people would have picked it up for what it was? Mm. So the, the, the education system in this country has a lot to answer for. But also, I think pop culture has a lot to answer for because we don't learn about these things in pop culture. We know about the war but a very romanticized version of the war, as we saw in the episode of Auto English. But we don't have, I, I was, I struggle to think of any representations of the far right in British pop culture. There aren't, you know, TV shows or movies like This Is England, which is set in the 80s and 90s. And it presents a very niche type of the far right. So, so I think pop culture has a lot to answer for. It's not just about our education system, but the failure of those who are supposed to be storytellers in actually telling certain stories. I remember being in school and it was literally like, yeah, there was this war and it was really bad because there was a bad person in Germany and it was really bad. But we went and fought him and fought him on the beaches. Anyway, let's move on to something else. And it's like, what? So I actually had to do, at, at, at like 13, 14, I actually had to do my own research because like, you know, as a, a self-involved kid, I was like, wow, this the what what happened? Like, what? how long was it? Like, you know, that was my school experience with being educated. So I went to my granddad. My granddad gave me, like, a book like this that was all about World War II, and I read it. By the end, once I'd finished this book, I was just like, well, everyone was horrible. Like, mm-hmm. but it was a very unflinching and honest reflection of World War II that still chills my soul to this day. 
I want to ask you guys a question as well. When in, in the book, in Jason's book, he talks about empires in decline are particularly susceptible to fascist politics because of the sense of loss. To what extent is the fact that Britain is a, an empire in decline and has been declining for so long makes us accessible to fascism? I mean, we can see how successful, susceptible we are to fascist politics. But the question I wanted to ask is, if that is the case, then what is the end game here? You know, how do we how do we stop a complete slide to fascism? And what we say about a complete slide to fascism, a lot of people tend to say, oh, there will be thinking about there will be concentration camps in Britain and things like that. But fascism doesn't look the same everywhere. There was a particular expression of fascism. Then we can have a full blown fascist society without having concentration camps. They are not, you know, a necessary condition for fascism. Do we think that it is possible that we would get that far? What would stop us from declining that far towards fascism? Or are we there already? Well, well, if, if I can just chip in, I, I think it's quite interesting how the British Empire really isn't talked about very much. So I think there's this ingrained arrogance. I think it was Cecil Rhodes who said, you know, if you were born an Englishman, you've won the uh, lottery of life, something like that. And I think over generations, that idea that, you know, Britain's ruled a quarter of the world and they had the biggest empire, that is ingrained. And it's still with us, even though the, you know, the empire has, has long gone. And I think the big factor is the fact that it's never talked about, it's never acknowledged that in Kenya, we had the equivalence of, of concentration camps where people were rounded up and we did dreadful things in lots of parts of the world. And I think until that is acknowledged and until we are able to confront the past honestly, then it's never going to be tackled properly. There's always this view that, you know, the, the British were fair and it was everybody else who was not playing by the rules. So I think that's something I would like to see tackled rather than just, as you're saying, World War II, it was a very clear fight between good and evil. We were on the side of good and, and everything we did was fine. Is very clear from that book in particular, isn't it? Yeah, I think reading Jason's book doesn't make you feel good. <laughs> it makes you feel very aware and nervous because everything that he's talked about and what I what I think is, is fascinating in the book that he doesn't give examples from Britain, but every single one of the points that he makes we can find an example for what's going on here as well. But the whole time that I was reading it, I was making notes and I was like, oh my God, yes, it's here as well. And it's quite scary to what the extent that each of the fascist tactics he, what's the word that I was looking for? He, he discovers, he outlines, are very clear, embedded in our lives. None of it is a surprise. When it comes to, to the empire and how, that we need to be honest about how the empire is taught. We see that it's going the opposite, right? With this whole idea of the culture wars and wokeism and we critical race theory can't be taught in schools and all of that stuff. It is directly going backwards and challenging any kind of critical thinking on the empire. But it is so desperately needed. I am a British citizen and I am a patriot in the sense that I live here. I choose to live here. I chose to become a British citizen. And I want this country to be a better place. And I see that we have a lot of potential, but we are not going to get there until we acknowledge what we have done in the past. I think I, that's something that I say quite a lot. I argue with so many people that think sticking a British flag in their bio and saying, I love England is enough, you know. 
Like, who is the true patriot? The one who has a British flag emoji or the person who's like, we are better than this. We can do better. We can fix the mistakes. We can acknowledge the things that we've done and be good. That, to me, that's the, that's the essence of patriotism, to want to make your country better for the people that live there and for to, to make it a country that people admire. Like, just sitting here, a cantankerous island filled with people that think that short shelves and no medicine and, like, awful in our rivers is is a worthy price to pay for annoying our neighbors it's i find it so confusing and the funniest part of it is which is like fascism has been something that's interested and scared me for a long time and one of the things that runs parallel to fascism in in british society is always making some like almost barely invisible enemy you know there's always the Muslims, the gays, the people of colour, the women at the minute, you know, like the, the way that the rhetoric against women at the minute is terrifying. And I think the thing that frustrates me is that we don't we don't see it being acknowledged in the right way. You know, they'll talk about these rogue men who go out and spike women or, you know, kill them, or we'll talk about you know, the, the rogue people who do interviews about how they want to roll back trans rights or how taking the knee is bad. We're not looking at these things holistically, as in it's a system of othering a set of people so that you can feel superior if you're not part of that. that that's the essence of dehumanization. And one of the cornerstones of fascism is making an enemy out of someone who just is there. And the fact that it's going on and it's so prevalent and so just like not talked about unless it, you know, unless it affects a journalist or whatever. It, it's terrifying. Like people should be going, why are we like this? You mentioned hierarchy and it's actually this book also did mention about hierarchy and how it's key. And that they say, for example, it, it's regarded as corrupt. And they fascists regard their enemies as being corrupt. And what they really mean by that in their terms is that they've corrupted the natural order of things like the aristocracy or white supremacists being at the top and women being below men. So Obama and um, Hillary Clinton are corrupt by their exist because uh, by their roles, because a woman who takes power or a black person who takes power corrupts the fascist ideal of what the system should be. And um, I don't know if, you, uh, if you're if you a fan of George Lakoff, but I think it's uh, his books are very eye-opening. And he names hierarchy, which is, um, he uses the phrase, physical hierarchy is moral hierarchy. And it's just a way, not every, every right-winger has a version of it, but basically a strong, better than weak, well, better than poorly, mentally or physically ill, men better than women, better than children. God fits into that quite nicely because he's the supreme being. And heterosexual, better than homosexual. Any of these things can be written as hierarchies and the, the right-wingers regard them as moral hierarchies. Because uh, hierarchies do exist in, in biology, but they don't carry a moral force say for example if you're physically well or unwell that shouldn't be a moral failing but to a right winger that's why they struggle so much with mental health and with the nhs and, and things because they regard poverty illness or 
weakness of any kind as a as a moral failing and that's the thing that we might not get about the right and why they think that but they've got this hierarchy and built in their system of thought it just strikes me how during the pandemic people were saying you know we've we're going to be kinder when all of this is over we'll appreciate others a bit a bit more you know we'll look after our, ourselves and then as we're coming out of it, I think people are just resorting to their old bad habits. There's a lot of anger. There's a, a lot of shouting. There's a lot of fixed opinions. So I don't know. I, I just sometimes I despair at how um, we don't seem to have, have moved on and how there's just a lot of a lot of unpleasantness at the moment. So yeah. I don't you see, I don't know if it's my age, but I don't know if it's getting worse or I just think it's getting worse. And I don't know if it's the internet and social media that are exacerbating anger that's already there, or it's just bringing it to the fore, or the fact that you've got, you know, these different social networks with with people in their bubbles just are in their echo chambers, just highlighting things and making things worse. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm. I don't know what to think, really. I think you're right, though. I think it's both. I think it is getting worse, but I also think that social media is highlighting things that previously would have gone unhighlighted because there is a lot that is bad about social media. My God, there is a lot that is bad about social media, but um, but it does a lot of good in not letting, in exposing some things that would have otherwise gone unremarked. So I'm a big defender of this. You know, a lot of people, my generation, when I was young, there was no internet. You know, when I, when I went to university, there was no Facebook. It was in my second or third year of uni that we emailed Facebook requesting our university be added to it. So this is very much, you know, like first generation internet kind of stuff. But um, but I, I defend the internet. You know, people say, oh my God, it's gotten worse because of the internet. I think a lot of it, yes, has gotten worse because of the internet, but a lot of it is going, is being fought because of the internet and because of the way that the internet has of bringing people together across the world and exposing things. So it's never black and white, is it? It's all gray. No, no. And, you know, technology theoretically is neutral. It's how people use it, isn't it? So, so it can be a real force for good, but is human nature not great? So less attractive qualities come to the fore. So that's why you you hear about such unpleasant things. I I I don't know really. And as you're saying, you know that it it it's a really useful tool for things like podcasts, for example. And it, it does bring people together. Well, there's some really interesting stuff that I you know like I always assumed that technology because it was. Because technology is not human, it's not subject to human morality. But that's not true because technology comes from humans. And if a human programs it, then humans, like by complete accident, I'm sure, but regardless, will build in, will hard code their own biases. I used to teach a course when I was working at the LSE on algorithmic bias. And we, we looked at all of this and how, you know, algorithms are not neutral because they depend on the data that they're fed. So if you fed them biased data, you're going to get biased results. And of course you feed it biased data because we all exist in a biased situation. And unless those biases are acknowledged, they're going to filter through things. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's bad that the, the language that people who work on algorithmic bias use is, you know, it's garbage in garbage out. It's some um, algorithms don't exist in a vacuum. 
So we don't run on for too long, although we could continue this because we're having such a great discussion. Thank you so much for coming and thank you so much for your support for the show. It means a lot to me and it means that I can keep on doing it. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you for doing thank it. You. Thank you. Bye. Have a good thank night. You. Bye. And that was our October book club. Thank you so much, Davey, John and Kelly for joining me. Because of the issues with my laptop, November's book club is actually going to take place this Saturday, the 11th of December. So you still have time to become a member over a coffee and join us this Saturday. We will be having a discussion on disinformation, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and we will be using the books The Storm is Upon Us by Mike Rothschild to anchor our discussion. I look forward to seeing you on Saturday and talking about all of this. I have so much to say and so many questions and I honestly can't wait. The bonus episode with the QAnon book club is going to go live hopefully next Tuesday. And that will be our final bonus episode for the year as we wait for the launch of Enemies of the People Season 2 in January 2022. I... I know I've said this before, but I am so grateful to each and every one of you who listened to the show, who rated and reviewed us, who supported me over at Coffee. You are incredible and you have enabled me to continue to do this. When I started this back in August, I honestly thought it would only be about 15 people listening to the show and we have far surpassed that. So thank you so very much. You've made my dream come true. So really, thank you. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time for more Enemies of the People.